Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Anas Karzai, lecturer in the Department of Sociology and coordinator of the Criminology Program at Laurentian University. Anas joins us to speak about the subject of his book, Nietzsche and Sociology, Prophet of Affirmation. We discuss why Friedrich Nietzsche has not received the attention he deserves within sociology, especially in North America, as well as how his writings provide an important alternative to and critique of dominant forms of sociological thought. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kyle. We are here today to talk about Friedrich Nietzsche. Could you give us a short introduction to who he was, or, or even better yet, what he's known for? Well, Nietzsche was a, a 19th century German philosopher, the son of a Lutheran minister. He was born in a very, raised in a very religious household. But in the mainstream culture, Nietzsche's reputation has somewhat improved in the last, I would say, 30 years or so. But in the philosophical and academic community, I would say he's known for having influenced 20th century social and political philosophy, both in Europe and North America and elsewhere. Nietzsche is also known for being stylistically different than his contemporaries. He wrote in short aphorisms, used often metaphors, and often wrote short essays. But he was and remains a master of German prose. And throughout his life, he suffered from severe migraines and poor eyesight. So that would be a kind of, a, in a nutshell, a short overview biography of Nietzsche. You mentioned that Nietzsche is one of these philosophers who has a cultural cachet outside of academia. Um, but do you have a sense that he's also read or has influence within sociology? The sociology, I would say yes and no. Yes is read informally or individually in sociology and, and other disciplines as well. In sociology, there is no formal courses on Nietzsche, let's say what we see on Durkheim or Comte or Weber or Marx for that matter. So it's not he's not formally recognized as a sociologist, but like in philosophy, the social sciences and humanities and history departments, he's read in psychology, in feminist studies. He has been read widely by philosophers and theorists like Hannah Arendt and Lucy Rigore, for example, and also the most recent Nietzschean scholars and feminist theorists, such as Sarah Kaufman and Kathleen Higgins and Ophelia Schutt, and many more, of course. But I would argue that institutionally, he falls behind the other giants of the 18th, 19th century thinkers. And there are reasons for why he's neglected formally, institutionally, that is, in the academy, especially in sociology and the social sciences in general. And we can get into those reasons. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I'd love to hear why you think he hasn't had more of a direct influence. Well, briefly, we have to go back to the 19th century and the rise and the beginning of sociology. Most sociologists that we call sociologists, they didn't call themselves sociologists. Comte didn't call him himself a sociologist, even though he coined the term. Marx didn't call himself a sociologist, for that matter, and Weber and so on. The other thing is that sociology historically has been very scientific, very positivistic. I mean, when you go back to Comte and read his text on positive philosophy, he talks about the application, and Spencer, influenced by Spencer, the application of the natural sciences, the laws of the natural sciences. So positivism has had a monopoly over the discipline. And Nietzsche, in opposition to that, and Nietzsche has a, a serious critique of scientific reasoning, primarily positivism, and, and even Marx. Uh, Marx was influenced by Comte and Spencer to a large extent. And we see Marx theories being very positivistic, 
very statistically driven, very scientifically. There's the whole branch of Marxian sociology is scientific, where Nietzsche is not. Uh, Nietzsche is, uh, in fact, the opposite. Even though he, he had some sympathy for science and positivism as a tool, as a method, but he wasn't really fond about the usage, the, the implementation of positivism in how to study society and how to change society in general. So, yeah. His serious critique of religion in opposition to having a philosophical system, I think, is also another uh, factor. Uh, his disdain for liberal democratic ideals uh, that we know. Uh, he didn't like liberal democracy. He didn't like philosophical systems. He criticized Hegel for that. And we see that Marx is the offspring of Hegel. So there are various reasons for why he's not accepted as a formal, quote-unquote, one of the fathers of sociology. His critique of religion is one of the main reasons, I would argue, because sociology at the end of the day remains a very a Christian-based discipline in its orientations, political orientation, social orientation, and how to organize society and so on and so forth. But I can get into that later on. One of the things I've noticed with my own engagement with academics who are inspired by Nietzsche is that for whatever reason, and this is in cultural studies, geography, gender studies, uh, even sociology, is that the ocean presents this giant barrier where in North America, I just don't see that same level of engagement. Do you have a sense of why that might be? Yeah, it's not an easy question because there are could be so many reasons for that. Uh, well, first, there's that ocean that you refer to, uh, the distance. But North America is, um, is a settler's nation uh, or a continent. So everything that had happened in Europe 500 years ago um, was happening in the last 100 years here in North America. Uh, so North America... Uh, as a highly religious place, I would argue, was not open to the radical ideas of Nietzsche at the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, go back to, uh, to uh, read the obituary um, uh, by, by the New York Times the, at the time of Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's uh, um, you know, death uh, when he died. Uh, North America was not friendly to Nietzsche at the beginning of the 20th century, especially his, his devastating critique of, of uh, uh, Judeo-Christianity. Um, he saw Judeo-Christianity as the foundation upon which this so-called new world was established and constructed. So his criticism, uh, such as nationalism, patriotism, uh, he didn't have much uh, patience for also for liberal democracy uh, because it brought, uh, according to Nietzsche, uh, mediocrity and, and so on. He thought it was a joke and a detriment or an impediment to a healthy culture. Uh, so... Um, so in this sentiment or attitude towards Nietzsche is still alive and well, I think. I mean, we have more churches in North America than Nietzsche readers or researchers, right? Uh, this is especially true in the academy. Uh, we, read, um, we read more Durkheim in sociology, for example, and over and over and teach the same concepts than pick up a Nietzsche uh, chapter from Nietzsche's book. Uh, so North America is a conservative, I would argue. Uh, uh, the conservatism of, of this continent, I think, is, is an impediment. Considering that Nietzsche is not part of the sociological canon or not someone you find in undergraduate classes or courses in sociology, how did you first encounter him? I heard about him back when I was an undergraduate student in the early 90s. His texts, The Genealogy of Morals, 
and the other text was called The Gay Science. These two texts on the course outline, and I was in this very small seminar on social thought, and the professor had us do close reading of those two texts. And I must say, very, very difficult to read Nietzsche for the first time, and as an undergrad, like any undergrad would do. It was very difficult and very intimidating because here you are, you're faced with reading, you know, Marx and Weber, Durkheim, Comte, uh, and so on. And then you have Nietzsche, whose style is completely different from the rest of the sociologists that we know of. So that's that was my introduction back uh, in the early years of my undergraduate studies at York University in Toronto. I recall the first time I read Nietzsche, I had this expectation that I would immediately get it because he has that cultural cachet outside of academia. And there were definitely sections that were compelling and, and well-written and not what you usually find in philosophy. But I also remember being very confused and not really knowing what was going on. And, and what I'm wondering is, when you first had that encounter, considering the, the challenge that his writing presents, considering he doesn't look like what we normally read, were you immediately drawn to it, or was it something that was alienating because it was different? I think both. Uh, yes, it was, it was alienating because I could only understand 50% of what he was saying, and I couldn't really situate him in the kind of a historical, philosophical trajectory of where his thoughts were coming from. Because when you read Marx, you know, you read the dialectics or you read the Communist Manifesto or the political economy of, of capitalism, you see where he comes from. Whereas with Nietzsche, it's very perplexing at first. It's almost he hits you in your face and he says things that you never heard of and heard about. So I would say both the, the uncertainty, but also the difficulty drew me to, I thought, you know, I want to read more of what this thinker has to say, because he was saying different things than others. So where did that take you? What did you do after you developed this interest in, his, in the ideas he was presenting? After reading Genealogy and the Gay Science, I started to read his other texts. I mean, Genealogy is one of his last works, a very difficult text, and in fact is a very important text. He identifies the emergence of modern consciousness, social consciousness, how humans have developed over time in terms of a genealogy. Because by training, he was a philologist and knowing ancient texts and reading them and so on and so forth. But in terms of other texts, I moved on to uh, Beyond Good and Evil, which is one of my favorite texts in Nietzsche's repertoire, I think. So I started reading him further uh, alongside reading others, like Hegel's Phenomenology, the introduction that took me a year and a half to read. Because <laughs> the Phenomenology, is a, I think that's where Hegel is. And I had to read because Nietzsche was making these references. And I thought, well, why is he making these references? What is he talking about? So I had to go back and kind of jumping back and forth between Kant, Hegel, <laughs> to Marx and Nietzsche. So, yeah, so it wasn't just Nietzsche in a sense, but reading everyone at the same time. But I started to read everyone else in relation to him and what he was saying. Could you share with us an idea or concept from Nietzsche that you've carried on with you as you've moved along in your career or, or something you found particularly inspiring? 
Well, I think his concept, I mean, there are so many ideas and theories and concepts from the, as you know, from the Ubermensch to the God is dead. But I think for sociologically speaking, I say this for your sociology students, his concept of the slave morality struck me as a very interesting concept. It's discussed in the genealogy of morals. The genealogy of morals has three essays. And in those three essays, he talks about master morality and slave morality or the herd morality, what Nietzsche refers to interchangeably in his writings. So I would say that concept really stood out for me. So how does his approach or these particular particular understandings of morality, uh, this concept of slave morality, how does that affect you as you go about doing your research? Because as you've mentioned, there's this gap between the theory and the practice, and you don't see a lot of sociologists start their lit, lit review by going back to Nietzsche or one of his concepts. I think his theory of slave morality is, is extremely relevant, and this is where I argue in the book that sociologists are missing out, in a sense, because his concept of slave morality or his theory of slave morality is, is, is a social anthropologically, that is, genealogically speaking, this concept tells really the grim story of how modern consciousness was developed over millennia. And, and Nietzsche is truly at his best. He, he describes and articulates with this kind of a genealogical precision the historical conditions under which the contemporary soul, or what we often refer to as our conscience, emerged. And we have that similar notion of the construction of history in Marx, the five stages and so on and so forth. But Nietzsche talks about morality in terms of consciousness, in terms of forces that led to what we now refer to as modern humans. And that he says, and that's very troubling because modern humans have been very carefully and methodically tamed and turned into what we would call compliant, predictable, uh, he says, but also unstable animals. So throughout his social philosophy, Nietzsche returns to this theme often and argues kind of that modern humans and especially Europeans at that time when he was writing uh, have become, in his words, obedient creatures, submissive and when they are active, let's say politically, their actions are fundamentally reactive and reactionary, yes? And I think World War One and World War Two is a testament to this theory. I mean, how do you convince millions and millions of people to go on slaughter other human beings? Yes, only humans have managed to do that. No other creatures and animals have been able to do that, to convince their own kinds to go out in millions and murder others or gas them, in that sense. So his theories, his genealogical explanations for how did we become who, where we are and who we are is very, very relevant, very interesting. And, and he says, if nature is not moral, then why are we? So in that sense, I can understand why modern sociology is not ready to read him carefully. And uh, I think the time is ripe that sociologists uh, not just read him peripherally on the side or a section or a chapter, but to take him seriously, to read him carefully, uh, all his concepts and his theories. Pushing this a little bit more, what does it mean for us to be reading Nietzsche as a sociologist? And we could use you as an example but if you're engaging with these concepts that we find so compelling, does it mean that we ask different questions? Do we study different topics? Or, or do we have to reconceive that maybe we have to reconceive the discipline as a whole? 
Exactly. The idea of a discipline itself is questionable. Sociology should not be a discipline because at the beginning, if you look at sociology, sociology is really an umbrella concept for all other disciplines. There's economics, there's philosophy, there's psychology, psychoanalysis, anthropology and physiology and so on and so forth. But in the context of sociology as a discipline, I can provide, I mean, several points or arguments here. Uh, A, I would say that Nietzsche contributed significantly to the development of sociology in that sense. And I think sociology would be understood differently today if more critics were aware of Nietzsche's influence. See, a lot of people are not aware of his influence. As you and I were talking uh, before, that people read Foucault, and yet people don't know that Foucault was extremely influenced by Nietzsche, and that Nietzsche would be read differently if he were seen as contributing to the development of sociology and modern social theory. And sociologists would be encouraged, I think, to see themselves working in close relation or proximity, if you wish, to other disciplines, such as philosophy and so on and so forth, and vice versa. And Nietzsche's studies and research would become more aware of itself, as at least in part sociologically. Because if you go back to the main translator in North America, Walter Kaufman, and when I was researching my book and writing it, I went back to Kaufman. Nowhere did I find in his translations and in his prefaces and introductions to all the translations did Walter Kaufman talk about Nietzsche's sociological insights and sociological theory. Kaufman primarily focused on Nietzsche's philosophy and psychology, but not sociology. And I wonder why. What was the reason for Kaufman to ignore an entire, I must say, beautiful and important component of Nietzsche's social thought. So it's so in that sense, it's it's very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about Nietzsche's relationship to the dialectic and also his influence on Foucault? Um, because I know this is one another one of those things that Nietzsche probably doesn't get enough credit for within sociology. Now, Foucauldian scholars know the influence he had especially on Foucault's methodology. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. If I may, um, there's one <laughs> statement, excerpt from one of his works um, uh, called Untimely Meditations. And if you don't mind, if I can read that directly, that, uh, that statement, uh, yeah, that would quotations. Be, that would be perfect. Uh, I, yeah. Um, so I quote, Nietzsche says, the belief that one is a latecomer of the ages is, in any case, paralyzing and depressing. Such a point of view has accustomed the Germans to talk of a world process and to justify their own age as the necessary result of this world process. Such a point of view has set history insofar as history is the concept that realizes itself, the dialectics of the spirit of the people and the world tribunal in place of the other spiritual powers, art, religion, and the sole sovereign power, and so on and so forth. Uh, th- that is, uh, uh, it's an important idea that Nietzsche presents here. Uh, and that's his, uh, his, one of his critiques of dialectic, uh, and dialectical philosophy. Uh, that we kind of uh, move uh, kind of forward, and it's as a result of historical uh, processes and world processes and, and events and so on and so forth. Uh, and this was an ongoing theme. His uh, write, entire writings was uh, in opposition to Enlightenment philosophers, uh, primarily Hegel and, and Kant. When you're explaining his critique of the dialectic, you can really see that influence on Foucault. Sure, and I think sure. it's so important because scholars 
often use Foucault as the person to critique that narrative of progress. Right. Well, exactly. Uh, you're right. And and I wanted to make that connection. And that was my uh, my purpose and to highlight that that relationship and that connection uh, between Foucault and, and Nietzsche. I mean, we still believe in the dialectic. Scholars, academics, policymakers, uh, the dialectic is, has been uh, such a strong and influential formula all across the board in that sense and and, and Nietzsche is, is very important in that context because he moves beyond the dialectic and he, I mean he goes back to Socrates where he calls Socrates as the perfect dialectician and the theoretical man uh, he says along the way he says Western philosophy is really uh, an amalgamation it's a Platonism for the masses it's Christianity and, and Plato's philosophy combined really and he calls Plato as the first socialist, so to speak. We talked a bit about Foucault. I'm wondering if there are other key theorists that sociologists draw on who work particularly well with Nietzsche. I think the other main thinker of the 20th century is Theodore Adorno, the Frankfurt School uh, scholar, members of the Frankfurt School. Uh, Theodore Adorno was extremely, immensely influenced by Nietzsche. Adorno's critique of mass industrial society was directly influenced by Nietzsche. And of course, other ideas, Adorno's and Horkheimer, their main text written in the 1940s called The Dialectic of Enlightenment was aided and, and influenced by Nietzsche's critique of enlightenment. But people always, even Adorno scholars, refer to Adorno as a Marxist uh, and a Marxian theory, theorist and so on and so forth. But Adorno says in various texts that Nietzsche had more influence on him than owes Nietzsche more than he does Hegel to Hegel or, or Marx for that matter. Thinking about the influence and potential that engaging with Nietzsche's ideas bring, I'm wondering how useful he is for thinking about race. And I guess I should say the reason I'm thinking about this is the first time I re-engaged with Nietzsche in grad school when I was getting my degree in geography was when I was taking a critical geographies of race course. And I was surprised to see him on the reading list, right? We know he's been misread and used by Nazis. Uh, we can think of his associations with white supremacists or white nationalists. So what did Nietzsche have to say or offer in thinking through race? Well, uh, thank you for that question. I think it's an extremely important question, um, given the uh, the cultural climate of the today's as we speak, twenty first century. Um, Nietzsche um, has been, as I alluded to at the beginning, um, has been misunderstood, misinterpreted, but also used and abused uh, for various political programs and ideologies, uh, most notably. Uh, for uh, 20th century, uh, early 20th century fascism. Uh, I mean, uh, his sister, Elizabeth, uh, was a good friend of, uh, of the Führer uh, in Germany. And uh, in fact, she gave the Führer, <laughs> uh, Hitler that is, uh, Nietzsche's cane as a gift and invited him to uh, Nietzsche's archive. Um, so Nietzsche's concept, Nietzsche's philosophy uh, has been used and abused by, by fascism. Uh, Hitler thought that Nietzsche was uh, the godfather of fascism, of the, the national socialism of the 1930s. And when you go back, and this is interesting, when you go back to Nietzsche's writings, he's <laughs> the opposite the things he's saying 
about uh, tribalism, about nationalism, about patriotism, uh, about anti-Semitism in the 19th century, uh, um, in the middle of the 19th century uh, of anti-Semitism. Uh, and I argued in the book um, that he was the only thinker in the 19th century uh, uh, writer that talked about racism uh, within the European uh, context. I mean, when you look at other thinkers um, from Mill to Locke to uh, even Hegel, <laughs> uh, they, their societies, their countries were uh, in, the, in, in the process of colonization. I mean, we're talking about 19th century. The colonial projects were happening around the world from Africa to Asia to, to the Americas. But here's Nietzsche who talked about racism and how anti-Semitic the German folks are and how this culture is truly a sick culture because how much they hated uh, uh, Jews in the 19th century. Um, he talks, it talks a lot about anti-Semitism. And even at one point in one of his letters um, uh, that comes to mind to me, uh, his letter to his uh, sister who was married to an anti-Semite, uh, he said, we should kick, kick out all the anti-Semites from Germany um, and so on. But yes, uh, I would say that he is, he remains uh, a critic of racism. And, and, and folks don't know that. As a final question, I like to ask our guest to, in a sense, sell the theorist to the masses. So imagine you're standing in front of a room of... Uh, sociologists, whether they're professors, grad students, undergraduates, people are just interested in the discipline. Why would they engage in the difficult task of reading Friedrich Nietzsche? As we know, his texts can be somewhat confusing, although they're, they are enjoyable once you get immersed into these ideas and into the writing, but it, it's not easy to make those connections. And as a sociologist, it doesn't always fit perfectly with the way we're trained and the way we see the world. So why why do we do this why why pick up one of the one of his books and, and open the pages well <laughs> frederick nietzsche uh, talks about society but he also talks about individuals and at the individual level and what you might do with, with your own life so to speak he writes in a way that where i said in the book that he doesn't really give you a template kind of a straightforward program let's say how marx tells you or Durkheim tells you what to do. I mean, Marx is really straightforward. He tells you, this is what you do. Rise up and take the stick and go to the street. Nietzsche doesn't do that. Uh, Nietzsche talks about uh, the the level of the individual more so than the level of society. But his his sociological critique is, is, I mean, maybe his Marx, um, his ideas, to go back to your question, uh, his ideas would overlap with Marx a bit in the context of sociology, but they also radically diverge in many ways from one another, even though there are fundamental differences, uh, how they see the past, the present, and the future. So in that sense, at the individual level, Nietzsche would tell you, this is, you need to have the courage to understand, take the time and patience to think, to read, to research, to pay attention to the world around you and not go through 
life as if life is just about eating and sleeping and going to shopping malls. Uh, so Nietzsche has, in that sense, at the individual level, he has uh, many programmatic suggestions and recommendations for individuals to, to rise up, to uh, attain and your kind of a self-actualization through knowing what is in front of you, in that sense. And the other point is, is that I should add here is that to not belong to the common. Nietzsche, as we know from his sociology, the common, uh, the majority, uh, what we would call society, he he doesn't really trust the common. Uh, he's very suspicious of them. Uh, he thinks uh, it's a collective. It's uh, they could be uh, persuaded. They could do great things, but they could also send people uh, to the gas chamber. So in that sense. He warns the reader to be aware, to be suspicious, so to speak, of not only the political and economic system, of course, but also your fellow people, your your neighbors, and so on. So he doesn't want you to love your neighbor, uh, so to speak. Uh, then your neighbor might be a nasty guy, uh, or <laughs> might be a you know domestic abuser or a gas chamber attendant. So he doesn't give you these Judeo-Christian kind of morals to live by. So he passes and moves beyond those. Uh, so in that sense, he's, you know, uh, he's very unique, very different. That is a perfect place to end the conversation. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for discussing Nietzsche. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Kyle. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.